everyone. This is Gail Brandeis. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Teferit Journal, and this is Teferit Talk. I just raced up the mountain to join you all. I was down in Reno today for a protest. Um, President Trump was speaking to the American Legion, and I was outside with around a thousand other protesters. Uh, just there to express our dissatisfaction with his presidency. And it was really inspiring to be with so many people who are speaking out against incompetence, speaking out against racism, speaking out against all that he has come to represent for us. And I love that Teferit Journal has that same mission, that we as a journal want to bring out voices of resistance, voices of compassion, voices of peace. And it was wonderful to see that in action in a collective way today down in Reno. And now we get to explore one voice in a very focused way. Um, we have the marvelous poet, playwright, just all around incredible hybrid writer, Khadija Clean. She's the author of five books which include Black Peculiar, which won the Noemi Prize for Poetry, as well as the verse play Non Sequitur, which is so fascinating, and won the Leslie Scalapino Award for Innovative Women's Performance Writing. Her most recent book is I'm So Fine, a list of famous men and what I had on published this year by Yes Yes Books. It's a really fun rundown of celebrity and clothes, as the title would have you believe, but it's also this powerful and deeply unsettling exploration of what it means to be a woman, specifically a black woman, living in our culture, in our rape culture, under the male gaze and the toll that that takes, and what it means to break free of that or live with that and become empowered as a woman. It's an incredible book, and I'm so excited to talk to Kadisha about this powerful collection. So, welcome, Kadisha. Thank you so much, Gail. I really appreciate it. It's my honor to be here. Oh, oh, it's just such a delight for me. This book really just it knocked my socks off, and it's a fast read, but it's so rich. It has so many layers to it, and it got under my skin in such a powerful way. I think the accumulative effect of all of these encounters with these men who are leering and entitled, it, it just really drives home just what girls and women have to deal with in our culture. And I'd love to hear how this project came about. How did you decide to write this collection? Well, it started... Um really as a list. It was like based on David Litterman's top 10 list that he used to do on his late night show. Oh, fine, yeah. And it was, oh. yeah, it was for a like poem a day thing that I do with a group called The Grind. And I didn't have anything to write that day, but I had been talking about the time I met Chris Tucker with a friend of mine. And I was like, I'm going to write a top 10 list of celebrities that I met and what I had on. And it just started mm-hmm. from there, and I kept getting emails from people saying that how funny they were, and are you going to write more of these? And so I just kept writing them. Oh, that's so great. They're, and they are so funny, but like you said, they have these other really powerful layers, and sometimes you'll slip something in that I think a reader could almost miss, but 
but it's like a stab to the heart just in a moment you mention a house burning down or a rape and it's just kind of plugged in there in the midst of all this funny stuff and Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that process was like for you Um, just weaving in celebrity with this really rich personal powerful information it felt pretty natural uh, I grew up in a family with a lot of women in it. I have one, two, three, four. Three sisters on my mom's side and like five more on my dad's side. And I, my mother has oh, eight wow. sisters. So, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So if you can imagine that many women talking about the things they that they've gone through in terms of encounters with men, not just famous men, mm-hmm. and the way mm-hmm. that they talk about it is, you know, the way you survive a difficult thing often is to laugh about it. So that is mm-hmm. how I heard these things come through to me often. was very oh, matter-of-fact and sometimes funny. Mm-hmm. But also with the poems, um, to have that tension to me, to, to play it up was important. Mm-hmm. Because that's how we sort of operate through life. We have these difficult things that we go through and yet we try to find some joy there. Yes. Yeah, and it doesn't surprise me that you were inspired by conversations with other women because there is something really conversational about these poems. And I think the lack of punctuation kind of um, emphasizes that feeling, but it also gave it a feeling, too, of social media um, where people aren't always punctuating. And... I'd love to hear a little bit about your choice to to leave out the punctuation throughout this and what sort of effects you were going for. I wanted it to sound like the voice that was coming to me, like with the poems. And I did mm-hmm. try lineating it. Like initially with the top ten list, it was lineated. But when I was reading it, it didn't seem quite right. So when I took the punctuation out and made it, a prose block instead of sentences or lines. It just felt better, felt right to me. I, I don't have a like a real technical choice, <laughs> but that, that oh. how the voice sounded to me, and I wanted to honor that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you do so much formal play, not just in this book, but in your other books. You, you play with form in such interesting and powerful ways. And I'm curious to know just over all of your work, is does the form dictate what you write or does the form kind of come organically as you're working on the project? It's definitely the latter. Although once I find a form, I then write into it. Usually I'm about halfway Mm -hmm. through or at least a third of the way through before I kind of figure it out. And then I can, I write really fast after that once I figure out the form. Nice. Yeah, it's amazing how that works. Sometimes with with whatever project I'm working on, I have to cast around a while before I figure out what form it wants to be or even what genre it wants to be. And then Mm -hmm. once that becomes clear, it does give the work so much life. And so it's fun to hear that you have a similar process. I have to bring up Donald Trump because (laughs) since Mm -hmm. I was just at the Trump protest earlier today, and he shows up in your book, and you write that you wish that he hadn't. 
Um, but <laughs> I was right. wondering if you, if you would mind sharing, um, reading that poem, it's page 26. Sure. I'd love to hear it in your voice. Thank you. Okay. I never met Donald Trump, but I sure have been grabbed by the you-know-what, and I really don't even want his name in my book, and I almost didn't tell this story, but sometimes it's important to name names, and the luxury of fame is that it doesn't matter what a nobody says. If you have enough money, you can buy any kind of truth you want. When you're a star, they let you do it, and actually when you're a man in general. The one who did that to me wasn't anyone famous. It was a homeless man on the La Brea bus. I was 15 and had on a white T-shirt and a denim skirt. I was with my mother, and she tried to protect me, but he chased me from the front of the bus to the back. And the driver, who happened to be really tall and muscular with his uniform sleeves rolled up past his biceps and sunglasses on with a strap, he had to stop the bus at Rodeo by the old movie theater and push the homeless guy down the exit stairs. And even on the street, he still kept banging on the flimsy doors and sticking out his tongue and shouting. Thank you. And I, yeah, I just find the moment in this poem where it turns out to be a homeless man after quoting Donald Trump, how, you know, if you're famous, you could do anything. I, I really like how this book drives home that even men who aren't famous are doing these awful things to women, that there's this sense of entitlement among men to girls and women's bodies. And I feel like that piece, I mean, all the pieces do, but that piece really drove that home in such a chilling way. But again, funny. Yeah, this was a later edition. Yeah. And and that's just so deeply chilling in in such a, a deft way that I... I admire and am inspired by so much. Thank you. Uh, did you, um, <laughs> I, you? You said you didn't want to include Donald Trump. What made you decide to actually add him to the collection? This book was mostly written before the election stuff was going on, and um, my editor when she gave me some feedback asked me to write some new poems and when she asked me, that was kind of when this stuff was coming out and it looked like, you know, it wasn't mattering to people that he said those things about grabbing women by the P word. And mm-hmm. I felt it was important to just put it in there. <laughs> when the yeah. poem came, I was like, I have to, I have to put it in there because um, he's so high profile. And now, however he got there is the leader of the free world, supposedly. And for someone in that position to be so blatantly abusive towards women um, was disgusting to me. And he had to be included. Yeah, yeah, he he fits for sure. And one thing I, I really appreciate that you do in this book as well is you show how this sort of behavior isn't limited to the entertainment world it's also in the literary world you Mm -hmm. talk about famous poets who treat women badly and I'm really grateful that women are starting to speak out about this more now I feel like just in the last couple of years we've been hearing more about bad male behavior in the lit world and 
I was grateful to see that in here, and I'm wondering whether that's something you've seen a lot about and or a lot of, and if that's something you've had a lot of conversations about amongst your writer friends. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you can't be a woman in any industry and not have those stories. But in the writing industry in particular, where your um, your work is often exposing your personal issues for a, a male figure, especially one in, in a power position, to take advantage of that mm-hmm. is particularly um, wrong to me. And um, I... I have been a resource for some younger poets who have experienced these things. Um, I know other people who have been a resource for young women experiencing these things. It's a very serious and uh, it's not limited to hetero relationships. And um, I would encourage people who see it to continue to not tolerate it. And if anyone is experiencing mm-hmm. it, to reach out and get some help. And for departments and institutions yeah. particularly to not tolerate it in their programs. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So important and I'm I'm so thankful that that because of poems like yours and because of essays that people are starting to publish and interviews that people are starting to publish that I'm hoping that more young writers will will feel that they can speak out and speak up and hopefully we can make a difference. In our own I hope so too. I hope so too. Thank you. Yeah, books themselves are almost as central as clothes in some of these poems, which I really enjoyed. It was it was nice to to see how many books pop up within these poems, and even in the very first one, you um, and can I refer to the speaker as you, or would you prefer I say the speaker? In the poem, you could. I mean, you could say it's me. Everybody knows it's me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the, um, in the first one, you're reading the woman warrior, and I think that that feels so perfect for this book because you do become this woman warrior throughout the collection, and I really love how how empowered you are, even as a young woman in this book how you're able to say no in that first poem to this famous actor who wants you to come to his house and I love how the book emphasizes that that you're reading the woman warrior and and how that sort of plays itself out throughout the whole um, collection and there was there was one poem too that mentioned books that your father read and I'm curious to know um, just about your process of of weaving these books into the collection, what you were hoping to do with that? Um, Again, that is something that felt really natural. We always had books in the house. My dad had a ginormous bookcase that filled an entire room. Um, Although it wasn't, he didn't have really a lot of feminist stuff. It was more like black history. And he had like the Western civilization set. It was like, 13 volumes or something but there was a big emphasis on reading we heard a lot of speeches like by Malcolm X and James Baldwin um, I was always reading I, my minor was uh, women's studies so I was just always reading they were just they were there in these moments I didn't really make up which ones 
I was reading. <laughs> Although it is pretty convenient, like that was that it worked out that way. Yeah, yeah, I love it, and yeah, just the strength of your voice from the very beginning is so powerful, and how you're able to to be so strong throughout, but how these encounters with these men still have their toll, even though you're from the beginning a strong young woman who can say no. It's it's this accumulative effect of all of these comments and stares and actions by these by these men. And it leads you to such an empowering place at the end. Um, I don't know if it's too soon to share the the final piece in the book, but I'm thinking about your postscript and wonder if you would like to read. You could read the whole thing if you would like or an excerpt from it. Um, What would you like? I can read the whole thing. Okay, that would be amazing. Okay. Name. Khadijah means wife of the prophet. Nothing about my name is casual. Your mouth has to make an effort. You have to commit to all eight letters, all three syllables, no nickname. It means something Uber drivers, the Muslim ones, all men, want to tell me about even after I say yes when they ask, do I know? They want to know how old I am and where I'm from. They want to get in my business, where is my husband? Some men can't stop telling me who I am or what exactly is so incredible about me or what they had to take or offer without asking. They still say it's my fault I am beautiful. I was raised as a Muslim. In the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful, shouldn't I thank God for the kind of beauty that makes me so desirable an object, so in demand by strangers, you might say my name cursed me to solitude. I don't see any prophets around, do you? If so, pass out my number, tell them I said, what's up, where you been all my life? I know it's a line, but people like familiar things like fellow boring straight people. Hey, I'll be 44 in a few years, and I have a a tradition to live up to, a prophecy perhaps, chop, chop. I cut off my hair because I wanted to begin again with something on my body no man has touched. I wanted to press rewind. I still want the kind of purity that cures men of acculturated entitlement. I want a little silence when I walk down the street or get into the back seat of a hired car in any city I travel to. Maybe I have to marry myself. Maybe I am my own prophet. I want to stop reacting and keep creating, and to do that, maybe I need a new kind of hijab that makes me safer unseen, free of both sound and adornment. I could use that kind of safety. Sartre said hell is other people, and by the token of time through the ages, surely a French philosopher knows whether man equals less than desire, and surely man is in loss, except those who do good works and enjoin one another to the truth and enjoin one another to patience and constancy. My mother told me I should keep some things to myself. She should have said keep yourself to yourself, but it was in her nature to be generous. I learned that kind of giving leads to further taking, and it's a light that attracts parasites. What's an ex-Muslim girl to do? Keep praying. The world of prophets is elite. They don't just let anyone in, lol, not wise, and sometimes I want to cut myself out of all possible institutional pictures. Sometimes I'm in a collage I made myself, and I have a new name. I have a name I have given myself, and I'm the only one who knows what it means. 
But that doesn't make sense. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Like the first time I was taken from myself, my father asked me what I learned, and that is what I learned. I learned I had no father, but I could walk in the rain and let my hair rise up in the night, become a black halo, a mean, curling closer to my head as if to love it, softly greeting as if saying, peace be unto me. A man can break you with your own love if you don't remember who you are among the non-believers. All praises due to the part of me that listens to herself first. The first time I drew a rose, I couldn't stop layering in new petals. My small right hand filled the flimsy newsprint with red Crayola spirals, the lines unbroken, the endless making as sweet as being out of the order other people like to think you are born to. Gorgeous. So wonderful to hear that in your voice. Thank you so much. That final image of, of the drawing of the rose, did the writing of this book feel like that in some ways? Drawing petal after petal? Hmm, maybe so. Yeah, and that is something that I used to do because I am an art school dropout. <laughs> so I did used to draw roses just to practice drawing. Yep. Hmm. Such a, a beautiful, perfect, empowering image to end this collection with and there's so many lines that just hearing you say them out loud just filled me with the most wonderful shivers just they they hit home so much the the line I cut off my hair because I wanted to begin again with something on my body no man has touched so so beautiful and powerful thank you for reading that oh my goodness Um, of course we both graduated from Antioch University. We both got our MFAs there, and you know the program has a social justice mission. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts are as a writer now. What sort of responsibility do you feel to engage with with issues of social justice in your work these days? I think that. I was attracted to the program because of that and because both of my parents were mm-hmm. activists. So it's never not been a part of my life. Um, there are mm-hmm. charities that I have supported regularly. Um, I have spoken out about um, police violence. Uh, my brother was killed by the police in the seventies. Oh, and so um, yeah. And I, I'm definitely, I don't want to say like crusading, but like it's a very important issue to me, um, women's safety, especially mm-hmm. in the literary world, um, sexual mm-hmm. assault and sexual harassment and those types of things. Um, I'm very active in uh, trying to dismantle those things, whether that's through um, actions behind the scenes or through what I teach. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for doing that important work. I I'm so grateful for your voice being in the world in all the different ways that you bring it out into the world. And I'm also grateful that uh, Kima Jones is helping to amplify your voice through Jack Jones Literary Arts. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about just what it's like to be represented by her and explain to, to listeners who may not know about Jack Jones just what sort of work um, she's doing to amplify the voices of writers of color. 
Uh, Kiva is a very incredible force in the literary world. I think that her work towards uh, amplifying the voices of black women specifically and writers of color in general um, has been much needed and uh, been very influential in the last couple of years. And she wants to, I think she's interested in parity and equity in terms of how we are represented mm-hmm. in the canon and in how much we get paid in, in, in the media, like media coverage. So um, what she does is publicity and she has um, a retreat, I believe, like a, I can't remember where it is. I think it's in New Mexico, but there's a retreat with several different scholarships for writers of color. Um, so she's doing a, quite a lot on top of her own writing. Mm-hmm. She's a gorgeous writer. Yeah, I'm, yes. yeah, I'm. I'm so grateful for all of the work that she's introduced me to, and I was happy to see that the two of you are working together. I'm wondering what you're working on these days. I have so many projects. <laughs> I'm working on too many things. I think um, I'm trying to slow down a little bit. I wrote five books in 10 years. I think I could like afford to slow down and focus on one thing at a time. I have some pro stuff. I have a play I'm working on. I have a book of poems that I'm working on. And um, I think what might get finished first is a book of prompts because I started teaching um, yeah more full time it's many years I worked as an editor for a finance company and I just quit last year so um, I have like hundreds of prompts so I'm gathering them slowly and we'll make them available for free online somewhere oh wonderful I, I love that idea do you have a favorite prompt you would like to share with our listeners? I do not. There are too many, and I'm very bad at memorizing. <laughs> I totally, totally get that. Well, one thing that I, I just had to bring up because I'm a humongous Prince fan is how excited I was to see um, both of you use Prince as your epigraph and, you know, the, that your title riffs. On, on the epigraph where, uh, you know, damn you, you're so fine. Um, and I love yes. how you turn that into I'm so fine, just how empowering that is, uh, just claiming that. Um, but could you possibly read your Prince poem? Absolutely. Thank you. Prince called me up on stage at the Pontiac Silverdome and my scary ass didn't go up there. My sisters waited in line for hours so we could get good tickets, and we lucked up on the eighth row and used the light bill money to pay for it. I mean, who needs lights when you got prints? And the day before the concert, I bought a super tight electric blue column dress from Charlotte Ruth at the Livonia Mall. It had a back-of-the-knee-high slit. I was 21, and we all screamed when the beautiful ones started up, and I began to cry even though he didn't play any of the old hits straight. But because everything was spectacular, I didn't sit in my seat the whole time and was losing my voice and then a burly guy with a headset motioned that I should go with him and come on stage and what? I froze. I mean, what? <laughs> I knew that dress. 
did not make me look shy, but I thought if I went up there, I would faint. And I'm not the best dancer. I thought I'd probably cry like an idiot and then pass out and wake up and pass out again. So I said no. I shook my head no, my heart beating fast and sweating my dress into a darker blue. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I probably would have done the same. Although I did get to go on stage with Morris Day last year, which was oh, quite a, a wild experience. I uh, is there anything you'd like to say about Prince? Just oh my god, the subject of him. <laughs> well, obviously, I'm a fanatic. Um, all of my sisters are fanatics. One of my older sisters uh, used, you know, those old plastic cups from the '80s. She like used a razor blade to carve his face into it and like burnished it oh, with wow. ink. <laughs> and nobody oh, can touch her Prince cup. <laughs> One of my cousins got almost got arrested for jumping on stage in 1984. I mean, it's, it goes way back. We were oh, all wow. very devastated when he died, and we still talk about him and, like, text each other pictures and songs. So we just we just love his versatility, his inventiveness. I feel like he's been a role model for my creative output. Um, he's a Gemini like me, ha-ha. So, yeah, he's incredible. I just, I love his music, and I love the way that he works. He used to work in the world, so. Yes. Yeah, me too. And he just kept reinventing himself. And I I love how you do that in your own work, how each book is so fresh and distinct from the next. And I just wanted to bring up Non Sequitur because I'm curious to know what it was like to see that on stage. It's so compelling and so inventive, and I love how you have characters like, you know, the last thin mint and the brown vagina, and um, I think it was the six-month wait for an appointment, just yeah, things right. that, that normally, you know, aren't given voice, but, but you're able to give these ideas and these, these things um, voice in such really intriguing, powerful ways, and what was that like to see it actually performed? I can't even, I don't, I don't think I can put it into words. Fiona Templeton did such an amazing job directing and conceiving uh, what a lot of people told me was not performable. And mm-hmm. I appreciate it so much, everyone involved in selecting the book, everyone, all the actors who put in such amazing, like, dance moves and singing and somebody wow. played the cello. David Hamilton Thompson, oh. I think, was the one who did that, and he's amazing. Jan Tandy, um, they were incredible. The costumes, um, Helga Davis wow. with her narration of the characters, um, I, I couldn't have asked for a better production. Oh, that's so exciting. Was it recorded? Do you think that it will be available for a wider audience to see at any point? I think there are some snippets available on the Scalapino Award website or the relationship.org, the theater company is the relationship.org. Oh, great. I will have to look for those because I'm so just so excited by by what you did with it, and I I would love to see it being performed. Thank you. you. That was a lot of fun. Coming up, oh, it must have been. Is there any... um, 
to any events coming up or publications that you'd like um, to share with us or, or any closing thoughts you would like to leave our listeners with? I will have some new poems, and I I hadn't written in a little while, so it's nice to have some new poems. I, I have them coming out in the Poetry View, which is the UK magazine out of London. So they will be out in September. And in the meantime, I'm just writing and trying to get my son through his last year of high school <laughs> and finishing his <laughs> doctoral program and teaching. So I'm gonna. It's gonna be a little while before I have a new book out. So oh, I'm looking forward to it whenever it comes out. <laughs> yes, Thank I you. agree that for those of you out there who do not have I'm So Fun yet, it is a must read. It's so timely. It's so engaging. It's it's a read that is going to stay with me for a really, really long time and one that I'm going to press into so many people's hands. I'm glad I get to do that on a wide scale right now. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a needed book in the world, and I'm so grateful that you wrote it. Thank you so much, Gail. Of course, and thank you so much for joining us. It was really such a treat to speak with you today. It was my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for the great questions. Well, thank you. And whenever your next book is done, I, I hope we can talk about that too. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Again, I am Gail Brandeis and this has been Tafera Talk. Please join us again. Um, I, gosh, do I have the date? Sometime in October, October 18th. Our guest will be Martin Moran, who wrote the great memoir, All the Rage. And until then, keep resisting, keep creating, and I'll talk to you soon. Um, now, on behalf of Tafera Talk Interviews, here's a brief word from Donna Verstein, founder and publisher of the wonderful Tafera Journal. Thanks again. Hi, this is Donna Verstein, founder and publisher of Tafera Journal. We first began to publish authors of different faiths and cultural backgrounds in 2004. I had recently been introduced to the word teferet, which means heart, compassion, and reconciliation of opposites. Thirteen years after the launch of our magazine, our world finds itself perhaps more divisive than ever. Reconciliation of seeming opposites is key. I truly hope you enjoy these new teferet talk interviews as much as we do. I hope, too, that you will visit our website at teferritjournal.com to subscribe to our quarterly magazine, participate in our writing retreats and community forums, or donate to our mission of promoting tolerance through literature and art. Thank you so much for listening.